This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Barry Jenkins' 2018 film, If Beale Street Could Talk. Okay, so here we are. Uh, we spoke, you know, I think we've maybe some off, off mic, but we spoke a little bit about how you hadn't seen a Barry Jenkins film yet. You hadn't seen Moonlight. Yep. Um, so I'm really curious to get sort of your perspective on If Beale Street Could Talk, which is clearly, you know... <laughs> we're two white guys talking about a movie that's so clearly about black love and, and like we yeah. as as humans we can connect to it but we, you know we just can't understand what it would actually be like to be someone who is black in america watching this film sure i i do think part of the part of the reason you make a film like this is to try and spread that awareness uh, you know i would think and uh i think it's effective in doing that um, but yeah, I agree. I want to put out uh, a similar caveat to what we put out last week. Um, I, I recognize that not everybody will listen to both episodes. They might just be dipping in for this one. But I do want to recommend our episode last week because we're not going to cover all the same ground here. But um, we may have spoke about some things last week that, that were are important for this story that we might not touch on here. So I do recommend checking that out. Um, but just in case you don't, I, I yeah, like I, like you just said, um, we are not trying to pretend like our voices are, um, authoritative here. Um, we're just two white guys reacting to this and trying to learn and trying to broaden our horizons. So with that being said, we're going to be talking about racism. We're going to be talking about the black experience that's on the screen. And in doing that, we may be a bit, uh, awkward at times, a bit clumsy at times. Maybe we don't have all the right terminology down. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying and we're we're trying to learn. Um, so hopefully you'll be uh, OK with maybe a little bit of awkwardness here and there. Yeah. And you mentioned how, you know, a film like this could put forth a perspective or like, you know, experience that that otherwise you wouldn't have. And in that way, I feel like. Just like with Moonlight, Beale Street here moved me in a way that I feel like and, and you know, the story in general with, between the book and the movie gave me perspective that I feel like is lacking in the, in the industry a lot of the time. And I think um, it's just important to see that sort of representation and to understand the human experience of especially a movie like this, because this is the like when you drill down to it is a just a purely human experience wrapped up in the fact that society is kind of stacked against people of color and specifically black people in America, in New York, in the 70s. Um, so and you know like it's unfortunate but we we're still seeing how relevant that is today we're seeing uh barry jenkins take this film and use something that took place in the 70s and then it's just such so, so vital right now uh and in in, in such a mind-blowing way it just it, it feels like it feels like nothing's changed in some ways and it's 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 pretty scary yeah, uh, I agree with all of that. I um, I was actually a little surprised that he didn't modernize it more. Like I thought this was he was just going to straight up set it in modern day. 
Um, I was a little surprised to see a period piece. Um, I think it, it definitely works that way, and it's more authentic to the novel, um, and maybe that was the goal, because in a lot of ways, this movie felt very uh, close and uh, faithful to the James Baldwin novel that we covered last week. There were some changes, um, which we can talk about. I think some choices were made to better translate scenes onto the screen that maybe work better in, you know, in, in a book than they do on, on film. And uh, some of that was done here or there, but it felt very much like uh, Barry Jenkins was trying to do this like really faithful adaptation. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to know what people thought because in some ways it feels like uh, it, there was an opportunity there to make it more present to what's going on today. Um, whereas instead, I think the connection to today is more like implicit and less explicit. I think something about the fact that it was set in the, and you know, this, this movie came out two years ago at this point, which is, uh, I believe Black Lives Matter was around for sure two years ago. There was definitely. Oh no, yeah, it was. Because it started, absolutely. yeah, it started, yeah. I forget what year, but it's it's been around for more than two years. It's been around for a while. And, you know, it's always been a movement. It's always been about the injustices that we're seeing in, in society towards black people. And But just to just specifically to have the, police brutality too. I think. police brutality, just straight up racism. Yeah. Prejudice. And to have everything going on right now, uh, have this story be rooted in the past and also the present. It just feels so. I, I can't describe how if he modernized it, I think, you know, I think it would still work very well. But there's something about tying together the fact that that this is the black experience in America. They have to go up against this from in the 70s and today. Right. Like like it's a window into the past and he's letting the viewer make that connection and say, like, yeah, this is happening now. And it was happening then. And it's happened every moment in between. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. And credit to James Baldwin, obviously, like we talked about in our book coverage, he's clearly yeah. a legend that we weren't informed enough on. Yep. Um, and he laid the groundwork here for a movie. I mean, you know, you could say either way, I, I you know, we, I'm, we're not here to say what's better, obviously, but what, what I'm trying to say is, is this story of love. Um, it's specifically like there's, there is, there is sort of the social turmoil of the time and the racism that's gone on and the, just the, the profiling that goes on, uh, but also the love story, I think, is the main because I, I in doing more research, I learned how much um, James Baldwin was interested in in love and specifically black love, um, whether it's like through the community, familial or like actually like couples coming together and mm -hmm. that sort of love. And I feel like that is something that is not represented, especially in this way. This is sort of like I a agree. beautiful love letter to black love. And I think it's it's sort of you know, scratching an itch that, that needed to be itched. There's, there's not this pure black experience love story. And, you know, maybe there is, but what I'm trying to say is like to, like to have this come out in 2018 and then also have the social injustice of it all. Um, I don't know. It was really powerful. And, and I just found myself continually, and, and it's all wrapped up in the fact that Barry Jenkins is one of our greatest filmmakers right now. He's, you know, the way that he's able to like, the, the whole movie just oozes emotion. Like you feel, you feel it in the cinematography, the way that the characters stare at the camera and you're just forced to understand them on such a human level without sort of the, the dialogue there. It's just like you feel it just from the, the pain in their faces or the joy in their faces. Yeah, they, they look dead center. They look like right at you is how it feels. 
and you and you look right into them like you look into their eyes and you can it feels like you know them and it feels very intimate um that was something i had in my notes too i definitely noticed um and rich like you talked about the cinematography like the color the his his use of like primary colors to splash into scenes you know like there's there's like a green light or there's a blue light or there's a there's a splash of like green curtains um it also seemed like the he was connecting them like the green came up a lot with tish and and um that family in general um red often seemed associated with fawny um there was there was striking blues um and golds in different moments in the story so i I wasn't able to track all of it but i have like some theories about some of those associations but like there was a language to the visual and what you were seeing on screen that was definitely there for effect and um you know in a movie that's set in sort of a drab Harlem, he was able to make it not drab and make it actually like this beautiful um, film to watch. You know, it was uh, really something to see, um, which was, I don't know. I don't know if it was surprising or not. I guess I, I expected it to be like that, but it was, it was impressive is, is where I'm going. Yeah. The, I have, I have sort of a theory um, and you know, it's kind of, I, I don't think it's necessarily true, but I felt like, some some of the time the colors in in the world the cinematography felt surreal and it almost felt to me it was outwardly showing the joy of harlem and i felt like the love that we kept seeing was affecting the world around them and so it was so beautiful because of the beautiful love that we're witnessing that's that's like that's what the story's wrapped up in so i felt like the love that we were seeing had an outward effect on the world, which I feel like with with the whole story being about sort of, you know, society and also more intimately about this family and more intimately about Fawny and, and Tish. Uh, I just felt like maybe there was something there where like, like, you know, the joy and the love that you can spread. And we kind of see this with, I think you had a quote from James Baldwin that was yeah. talking about how love can change the world. And I just thought maybe through cinematography, Barry Jenkins maybe was trying to evoke that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't know if, I don't know what the origin of it is, if it's supposed to be coming from the characters or not, but thematically, I think you're right on the money. It is it is showing beauty somewhere where people might not expect it, and um, maybe it's beauty that was always there, I don't know. Um, but it, it is, right? Like, it's it's showing, if, if it's showing beauty somewhere where people might not expect it, that's the whole point of, like, showing love in an impoverished area in Harlem um, in the seventies, right. With, with, a, a black couple who's being centered and notably, although Fani is arrested and, um, a victim of the system, if you strip away the exteriors, the interiors, it's a very traditional, almost, um, conservative romance. It's, it's, you know, like, uh, Tish is a virgin and they are, it's sort of love at first sight. It's childhood romance that has always been as if fated. It's like a fairy tale, right? It's a very classic love story. And it's told, but it's told in a place and with people that have not typically been given that treatment. And so in doing that, like that's powerful to do on its surface. And then uh, I, I think the cinematography is trying to visually represent that by showing beauty in areas where we might not expect it. Right. And uh, you spoke about the sort of the intimacy of it all. And 
as I, as I said before, there's sort of, you know, you could call it a trademark. I don't think it necessarily is. But in Moonlight, there was a lot of char- uh, the audience being confronted with characters staring directly at them. I just want to ask you, have we covered another film where that was like a thing we talked about? Because I'm, I'm having flashbacks. We had so we had um, in Silence of the Lambs, we had them looking. That's what it was. Almost directly at us. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of I, th- I think it was particular Hannibal looks directly into frame a lot. Right. Mm hmm. Oh, no, it was all the men. It was all the men. Whenever they're looking at um, Clarice, they're staring right into the camera, which gives us the sense of like they're looking right into us. It's interesting because here it had a different effect, even though it's a similar uh, device. And maybe it's just the characters who are doing it. Right. Right. It's context. I had I had something that I was thinking about with the sort of um, I hope that you know no one ever has to see a loved one through glass and i kept thinking about how we're seeing these people that we grow to love throughout the story through glass and we're confronted with it early in the story and we're confronted with it late in the story when she goes to see fawny each time um and just this idea of we fall in love with these people because we've gone on this journey with them and we understand them on a human level and then we are seeing them through glass and they're confronting us we're in tish's point of view when we're seeing fawny through glass um, yeah. So I think that's like really powerful. And that's a line right out of the book that um, just oozes voice to me like that. That is um, it hooked me in the book. It it was powerful when when Tish says it. And then I was so glad to see it represented in this movie, you know, word for word, because, uh, you know, if you read this book, like that's one of the that's one of the lines that I think you you feel has to appear. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to talk about also the confidence of of Barry Jenkins to trust the audience to you know clearly in a, in a story that's about about love in this way um to confront an audience to make a decision about how they feel being confronted with these shots directly to camera um mm. and it's not it's almost like they're in a in another movie something would be narrated during this part to, to give you the inner monologue of a character in a way yeah. and there is narration in this story but just this idea to confidently be like you you understand what's going on you know what's going through their head you know what what pain they're in what joy they're feeling uh that's that's confidence in filmmaking it there's an intimacy there which i think i touched on earlier but i want to reiterate because when they look right at you it feels like you're standing in front of them close like very near looking into their eyes while they tell you whatever it is you know so it puts you in the in the position of whoever they're speaking to or just as as not a, not a sort of casual observer, but a close confidant or a close friend of the character who they're being that intimate with. Um, so it for me it was like it was it was a um, a powerful sort of use of you know filmmaking to to you know evoke that empathy. Um, there's another scene later which does it in a different way that I think but for a similar effect that I want to touch on, but I'm going to, I'm going to wait until we get to it. Cause I know we're going to do some sort of chronological scene discussions here. Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple of the things that I wanted to hit on before we jump into the, the plot itself and Barry Jenkins, mm-hmm. the filmmaker, um, we spoke about sort of the cinematography. So I just wanted to mention um, Barry Jenkins and cinematographer, James Laxton looked at Roy de Carava's work and a quote said, we wanted to translate Baldwin's language and Harlem's clean energy into visual writing and photography. Um, and I think, I think that that's achieved and what I find really, you know, endearing about this and what I find to be really fascinating, you know, every artist in this film, every production designer, 
you know, I don't know for sure. I didn't look through the list, but but you would assume based on the cast and and director and, and direction and and maybe even some of the producers, um, there's a lot of black people involved in the production of this film. So so to get the perspective of people who've been in these situations, from people who've been there, um, who've been in love like this, who know people who've been in love like this, to know, you know, we know everyone knows somebody like this, and and. Um, I just think it's it's so powerful when a filmmaker is so confident and goes and gets artists who are all on the same page. I, um, I, I saw I watched the uh, Toronto International Film Fest uh, Q and A from 2018, and they had a lot of the actors there, and just to hear some of the stories they said about you know the prejudice that they've seen, even as even Barry Jenkins tells a story about um, at an award ceremony for Moonlight, there was like. A ra- uh, like his cab like his driver that was supposed to le- like take him out of there and take him to the next location he was trying to leave apparently like he walked out to get to the car and some some valet walked up to him and said like you need to watch out for this guy like i wouldn't get in his car and apparently he'd been like he said the he, he said the n-word multiple times and basically said like you know i'm just picking up this guy and he's he might even win best picture or whatever for for moonlight but he's still just a n-word and it's and then right. barry jenkins went on to say like even at he's he's like i was wearing a five thousand dollar suit i had just Jesus. been nominated you know what i mean he's like he's the height of success at the, in that moment and to yeah. still be to be discriminated against in this way and just what that means to the black community the fact that it doesn't matter where where you're at there this it's just it's inherent it's in society and it's just it's it's crazy um but yeah just to yeah. to hear about all of these actors who have have witnessed this and gone through this um i think makes for really authentic art wow yeah you know and i I, so i was reading some different takes on this um uh one of them i i had sort of seen early on in the process but i i held off until i saw the movie but i i went back to it because i wanted to to check into it um it was someone who was kind of critical of this movie and you know they had like a list of things that they felt like barry jenkins missed in the adaptation Okay. And uh, one of the points they made um, was about the police officer character and how he was over the top. Uh, I think they used the term gargoyle-esque racist and how they felt like there was a missed opportunity there to have the character be uh seemingly more kind and empathetic and then have the racism be identical sort mm-hmm. of like come at you from surprise whereas this was like a monster that like everyone can recognize and like a white person can look at and say well of course that's terrible it's the idea of like a character who uh the preconceived the bias that the character has is so is so ingrained that there that the like there's like microaggressions or just even like like outward racism um when seemingly they're not like a like full-on villain character right right like they're, they're someone that was the who... point they were making but it was interesting because I, I i couldn't help but think of the videos that we're seeing online right now constantly mm-hmm. of people being every bit as monstrous as this cop was and yeah. some of them are police officers that we see doing it and so and their and their review was written was written a few years ago i think when the movie came out so i don't know if that would have changed anything but I, it was an interesting effect because I, I, on one hand, I kind of agree, but on the other hand, I'm like, well, this is a reality too. Like, there are people like this. And I was just struck with how small they seem 
and and that cop seemed in that moment and whenever i see people online they just seem so pathetic and their hatred just makes them tiny to me and 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 pathetic and sad and and detestable in so many words and it's like i felt that way when this cop was was doing his thing and i just can't fathom that this is a thing that people still do like i know it is because i see it every day on twitter these days um but it's incomprehensible to me because of how just how blatantly awful it is and it makes you makes you be in that moment seeing stuff like that makes me lose faith in humanity a lot of the time you know what i mean like i feel like this is you know there there are these outliers that are clearly these monsters that are out there and you know i think you know not being a black person in america we can be kind of not confronted with it on a day-to-day basis especially uh, with the movement that's going on right now we are but before this i think we you know we weren't seeing it on a daily basis we didn't understand necessarily like you know people have been saying it for generations for decades um but i feel like now is the time where people are fully being confronted with it and starting to understand like these monsters are around well and specifically in the police forces of america right like that job for whatever reason seems to attract people who are that kind of racist and um that has been on full display with these demonstrations in america because it's like stop you know brutalizing us and and being racist is the what the protest is about and and the response has been to triple down be even more brutal and be even more racist by by so many not everyone right. not everyone but and, and i mean that's the that's the scary thing like you you think we live in an advanced society a progressive society for the most part that that <laughs> is willing to understand what, <laughs> i don't even know listen, if i think that but i want i want to believe that. i mean yeah i i just think like the my you know my most optimistic moments i think that and and then i right. think about how most people can identify hate and can mm-hmm. distinguish hate from love let's say and, and to be so outwardly hateful and to not detest yourself and see yourself as a villain in real life, um, it blows my mind. Just seeing seeing yeah. people walk around being the worst human beings and, and having no remorse. Yeah. Yeah, because you can look at it. You can look at a character like we get in this movie and go like, oh, he's so mustache twirling evil. You know, everyone's going to know that person's bad. But that's not true. Like, there are people out there who are that person and who will not see that person as a villain they're probably not watching this movie but still you know right and so in some ways maybe that's what barry jenkins was putting on screen he was like i'm gonna put on the fucking you know monsters that i do encounter well and this this brings up an interesting point something that we talked about just mentioned to each other after we recorded our last episode we wanted to mention why the title of the film and and story is if beale street could talk Right, which is right at the beginning of this movie. There's like an explanation, right? Exactly, yeah. So this is a quote from James Baldwin about Beale Street. Beale Street is a street in New Orleans where my father, where Louis Armstrong and the Jazz were born. Every black person born in America was born on Beale Street, born in the black neighborhood of some American city, whether in Jackson, Mississippi, or in Harlem, New York. Beale Street is our legacy. This novel deals with the impossibility and the possibility, the absolute necessity to give expression to this legacy. Beale Street is a loud street. It is left to the reader to discern a meaning in the beating of the drums. Yeah, I like that. It, it does provide context. Like this is a movie about what it's like to grow up in a in a black neighborhood, you know, and that that it that can be true everywhere uh, in America. So yeah, because I I always thought it was kind of I mean not always but like <laughs> in the little bit of covering this I was like it's interesting he didn't name it after a street 
in Harlem. Like that would have that's what I assumed Beale Street was, um, but it wasn't. I think it tr- it's trying to make it maybe a little more universal. Uh, and just to speak to sort of a filming location thing that can somewhat connect to this. Um, part of the filming took place at St. St. Nicholas Avenue, which Barry Jenkins knew from having lived on the corner of 145th street for a long time. So, um, I think it's interesting to think of an artist who was somewhat close in proximity or like the idea of where he's filming this, um, having, you know, having that connection to himself. Right. Um, I know he was, he was, I think he's a Floridian. I think he was born in Miami or yeah. And I know he went to the film school at Florida state, but incidentally, my mentor that, um, when I went to the university of Florida, she also went to this film school. And so she kind of has that connection to him in that way. And I've always thought like when, when Moonlight came out, she, I remember her telling me like, you know, he went to the same film school as me. And I just thought that was really awesome that like that connection was was made there. And like I said, one of the greatest, one of our greatest filmmakers right now, um, just in terms of of having such a unique style and having some like such an important voice. So you said Moonlight and you and then obviously Beale Street. Has he made any other films? He has. Yeah. Um, only a few, though, because he did take like a eight year hiatus from from filmmaking at some point. So, okay. um Actually, this I feel like is a great time to sort of jump into him, so maybe I'll read some of his bio here. Barry Jenkins is an American film director, producer, and screenwriter. After making his filmmaking debut with the short film My Josephine, he he received an Independent Spirit Award nomination for Best First Feature for Medicine for Melancholy in 2008. Following an eight-year hiatus from filmmaking, Jenkins directed and co-wrote the LGBT-themed independent drama Moonlight in 2016, which won numerous accolades, including the Academy Award for Best Picture, Jenkins received an Oscar nomination for Best Director and jointly won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay with Terrell Alvin McCraney. He became the fourth black person to be nominated for Best Director and second black person to be, to direct a Best Picture winner. He released his third directorial feature, If Beale Street Could Talk, in 2018 to critical praise and earned nominations for his screenplay at the Academy Awards and Golden Globes. So he's also had an interesting career beyond that that I was realizing. Um, after he worked on after the success of, of some of his earlier films he wrote an epic for focus features about stevie wonder and time travel and an adaptation for james baldwin's novel if beale street could talk neither of which initially entered production so he wrote he wrote if beale street could talk and was working on it um i think around the time that moonlight was also being written i think he said that he wrote both of them within like one summer of, in europe or something like that um he later uh, after you know working on these screenplays and everything, he later worked as a carpenter and co-founded Strike Anywhere, an advertising company. In 2011, he wrote and directed Remigration, a, sh- a sci-fi short film about gentrification. Ooh, sorry, I like sci-fi. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see a filmmaker like this who has become very well known for his g- grounded storytelling and yeah. and very intimate portrayals. And then just thinking of a, I would love to see a sci-fi film directed by Barry yeah, Jenkins. So maybe, I'll, maybe I'll have to. I think everybody should dip their fingers into the genre, especially black black directors. Absolutely. We need more of it. Jenkins became a writer for HBO's The Leftovers, about which he oh, said, nice. but about which he said, I didn't get to do much. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, right? He he worked on an amazing show. Um, and I wonder if it was just the writer's room. I wonder, I wonder what, you know, that's that's pretty loaded thing that we that we have not a ton of context for. You know? Right. I mean, it might be loaded or it might just be an offhand comment like 
someone might have been trying to give him a bunch of credit for the show and he might have been like oh i actually didn't do that much on that show or he might have meant i wasn't allowed to do much and that's fucked up i i don't know <laughs> right yeah I, I would like to know more about that but he yeah. worked on the leftovers which you i know both of both of us are huge fans of yeah absolutely so that and then that kind of leads us to moonlight which we talked about a little bit and then which clearly blew blew up the entire it was it was amazing you know the success that came from it um the the accolades well, and everything i mean and, like and I there said, was the, the there was the the fumbling of the yeah the award uh, thing that became a viral moment it's such right? a viral moment and everything but it's yeah. so unfortunate that it happened to that movie still to this day i feel really really conflicted about that whole thing it's like it was just really of course when like moonlight won and it, it just felt like a very weird thing to happen and i know it was just a mistake yeah it, it was weird i agree but it was it was super it felt it, i wonder if I there's any silver lining where maybe it brought some more awareness to the movie than, than there would otherwise been but i don't know and it may have um and that if, might just if be so, me that's looking great. for something positive in a in a shitty situation right but it was just of course like this is a massive moment um for black filmmaker who like like they like i just said yeah that's like, a good point um he he was only the second to ever direct a best picture winner. And like, I don't know, that's, that's just a, it's such an unfortunate fumble to sort of everybody be focused on that instead of like the fact that this won. I know we're, we're sort of well in the weeds here, but was it, did it ever come out? What exactly happened? From what I understand, it was just, it was like there, the way that the things were listed on the card, uh, for whatever reason, they read the card incorrectly. Like, I, I don't know if it was, like, the wrong card was handed. Oh, you, you know what? Now that I remember, I'm thinking that I remember the wrong card was handed, and it was, yeah, like, a rehash. Yeah, I, I thought it was an instance yeah. of the wrong card or something. I think it yeah. was, like, the wrong card. Like, Emma Emma Stone had won, I think, like, Best Actress or something like that, and I think that card got recycled and sent to, with them on stage, and then they looked oh. at the title of the movie, which she was nominated for, and not her name not realizing sort of what was going on but then like right, right away they understood they knew it was moonlight so i don't know it was it was a debacle and like i i don't i don't like i said unfortunate very unfortunate yeah, if it did sure. raise awareness for it great but it was just it's just kind of a weird thing to have happened so before we get into beale street um because you have seen both of his major films i think it's safe to say and i've only seen this one um do you is there any sort of like signature barry jenkins things that that are sort of consistent throughout both? I mean, absolutely. I think, for one, human experience um, is... is I, I think that these are some of the most human movies that I've seen, is like w sort of an easy way for me to say. Um, they're extremely intimate. They are giving you, me specifically, white, straight man, perspective that, you know, I had... I understood sort of what people had gone through, but I, f I felt like I was able to experience maybe an iota of what these people go through on a, on a daily basis, um, or at least like through their lifetime. I mean, Moonlight genuinely like shook me. I, I, I it was an amazing movie and, and Beale Street feels similar. There's, I mean, there's tons of stuff to talk about in terms of like the consistency in his, in his cinematography, the people he works with, the scores that he has are already legendary. They've only been around for a couple of years. Um, Beale Street would being no exception. I, I found myself really pulled in by this score. Yeah, it, it was a, a great score. Yeah. And whenever that music sort of like this, this like sad orchestral music would mm -hmm. sort of swell, uh, it, it would get you, you know, very, it feels, very uh, powerful, emotional music. Right. And it feels timeless, too. 
another thing I wanted to talk about because I feel like bringing awareness to this stuff is is important and I see a lot of black filmmakers call bullshit on this kind of stuff is um, lighting of black actors in films is something that is overlooked a lot so basically what what uh, you know filmmakers like Barry Jenkins and Ava DuVernay are very specific in coming out and speaking out against basically laziness when lighting black actors there's there's a lot of scenes where they're underlit or they're sort of not made because you know Hollywood and and feature films that are that are this widespread are made to you know everyone is to look their best and i think they're that like they're calling bullshit on a on a practice that it's white filmmakers and white people who have run the film industry for such a long time um one don't know how to light black people don't know like the way that you need to set the aperture of the camera and the lighting that you need in order to make them look beautiful in order to you know what i mean in order to show them at their best in the same way that you would show a white person at their best by lighting them correctly and having the correct makeup um it's something that i think a lot of black filmmakers are trying to raise awareness about and it's sort of like this bias that's just built into filmmaking in in america Hmm. specifically um it's like this like they're overlooked when lighting comes comes in play and it makes for people looking sort of not their best and it's and it seems like to me it seems like either just ignorant on the subject or actively sort of uh, the bias in their head may be thinking like, oh, the white person is the focus of this shot. So we need the light for the white person and the black person. If they're underlit, then we just have to deal with that sort of situation, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that is unfortunate. And I can definitely see how that could happen. And uh, I'm glad someone's someone's pushing back against it. And this movie is an example of that. Like the, these people were, were lit beautifully. Exactly. Every, every and scene. that's. That's that's sort of my roundabout way of saying Barry Jenkins knows how to light black people and, sure. you know, have them glowing and perfectly lit. And just it's like it's all of his frames are paintings like we we've, we say mm-hmm. that a lot. I feel like is like the idea of uh, you could take a screenshot of these movies and every you know that he plays with the depth of field. He plays with the lighting and just the way the colors. It's just all of it is just so beautiful. I think this is a great time to move into Beale Street itself. I did want to uh, sort of give us a chance to talk about the cast before we get into plot. Um, Because I feel like this cast is completely loaded. I think that... um, Did you know that Kiki Lane, who plays Tish, this is her first feature film. This is her feature film debut. I did not know that, but they seemed... It seemed like um, maybe some like somewhat relative unknowns. And to to make them front and center and, and give them such important roles... Uh, yeah, I, I noticed how uh, that was a that was a bold decision and it paid dividends here, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there's something about having actors that are raw um, mm. and bringing them maybe so, sort of like, I'm not really sure, sure what like how to describe it, but there's something about finding someone who hasn't been taught to act and just the mm. way that they can express emotion mm. and things like that sometimes in, in films. And, you know, it's not that acting is bad or anything like that but there are practices that people get into things like that whereas i think the theory is a raw actor can be more engaged with the sort of like how would you actually feel without using any acting tricks if that sounds like there's some poor acting teachers out there (laughs) well i mean you know there's a lot of scam artists out there that are trying to you know teach you to be the next daniel day lewis yeah yeah because i would assume that uh, being educated on the craft is not going to be a bad thing unless you're being poor, like someone's giving you bad advice, which is like, that's like, that's true with like writing and stuff. So I can see that it would be true in any, in any sort of endeavor like that. 
And I don't mean like it's sort of inherently bad. I just think it's like you can be more raw. Whereas like if you go through a few movies, you sort of can fall into some habits. And I'm not saying this is the case for everything, but basically like you can it, it can be more unique if it's the first time you're doing this. And it's it's like after you do this, you, t you take those tricks that you learned from your first movie into your second movie. And that sort of becomes sort of some of your persona on screen. This could be an example of sort of you finding all of that in, in, in itself and very raw and, and like... Uh, uh, emotion could be could be very accessible to you i guess yeah yeah i, I can see that so uh uh stefan james who plays fawny mm -hmm. um Excellent. i felt yeah i felt that his performance was was amazing i thought that the chemistry that he and tish that fawny and tish had in this film was extremely genuine uh right I was, which is it uh, has to happen for this exactly. movie to work and they and they carried that you know what i mean they this movie was on their shoulders and they carried it mm -hmm. uh i think super well Regina King is um, one of my great. favorite one of my favorite <laughs> actors working today. Yeah. Speaking um, of leftovers, yeah, leftovers. Watchmen recently. Mm -hmm. She's she's amazing. Gosh, so um, good in Watchmen. And and like the the scenes that she gets to go confront Victoria Rogers, um, sort of when when Victoria has her moment of just breaking down completely. Like I, I was glad that she got that scene because it really felt like that was her moment to really to really show the tragedy of the moment. And the, the full realization, I think, of what, what she had done, but also the the fact that she wasn't going to be successful in, in, in why she even came. There's the scene that, that uh, when she finds Tish in bed and she sort of like talks to her and says, like, you know, there's no, I know there's not a lot I can do for you here, but I am here for you. Um, yeah. And I just felt like she she gave a great performance. And, you know, I, she was nominated for Golden Globes and I believe she was even nominated for an Oscar. Um, for this performance, I think rightfully so. So uh, I want to I want to highlight uh, one. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who plays Daniel yes. Cardi, I'm glad uh, that you did. Had had a fantastic scene. It was one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, I found it incredibly effective. And his version of that story, where he tells the sort of what happened to him and how he got imprisoned, and the things that happened to him in there, and how they can how afraid they can make you, and the way the music, the the you know the way the camera sort of like keeps getting closer and closer to his face and things turn dark and, and um, he implies a lot without saying maybe as much as the character did in the book. Um, but I still feel like it was all there because it was all implied. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, at that moment alone, she just knocked that out of the park. I mean, that scene, that scene between he and Fawny is, is my favorite scene of the movie. Um, really? It, it was so, you know, it's so affecting it's so yeah. it, there's a lot that's not said. There's a lot that is said. The moment where Fawny sort of tries to comfort him and he says, like, you just you can't. I know I know you're trying to help, but like just yeah. you, you don't understand. That was like a gut punch. Well, and that also like, I mean, twofold. One, Fawny will understand, unfortunately. Exactly. And we know that. Mm -hmm. But two, he's also talking to the audience, right? Like we're like, oh, yeah, we you know, we I, can hear, I hear you, man. That's probably really bad. And he's saying you don't know unless you've been there, right? Yeah. Some surprise, uh, some surprise cameos for me. We saw Diego Luna as as the uh, the server at the restaurant, or maybe the restaurant owner. I'm not really sure, but he kept like mm -hmm. they would show up and he would like hook them up with some good food and some nice drinks and everything. Give them a table. Um, yeah. What else do I know him from? Uh, he, he was, was familiar. In, he was, I think you probably saw him in the Star Wars. Um, ah. 
the Star Wars, um, whatever it's called, the side story. Rogue, Rogue One. One. Rogue One, yeah. Yeah, and speaking of Star Wars, we also have the Mandalorian show up. We do Pedro Pascal, yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> He's great, as usual. Yeah. It was cool to see him. He probably shot that in a day, right? Like he had yeah. like one scene. I mean, but it's like it that's what good. I mean. Like this this cast is amazing. Like even even like sort of the characters that aren't aren't within the main cast yeah. that we see. Um, so we have Dave Franco showing up in a weird role. I didn't know how to feel at first, um, but actually has a pretty a pretty nice scene. Okay, uh, so I I'm gonna. He was one of my least favorite performances right. in this movie, um, and. I don't know if it's all his fault. Um, I think part of it is being slightly miscast. Um, that character read is much older in the book to me and having him be so young, like I don't feel like Dave Franco is that much older than, than Fonny, right? Like, <laughs> right, um, yeah. then, then Steve, then Stefan James, which maybe he is, I don't know, but he does. He, he looks young and that changed the, some of the, um, some of the, the the final moments of that scene where he talks about how he likes people who are in love mm-hmm. and well did it, it seem it, like it seems like you know someone who is who is wise and has been through a lot if somebody is older and seemingly that much older you can exactly. understand it more than somebody who's seemingly yeah, the he's same like age. I've, I've lived through a bunch of shit I've been discriminated a bunch you know for for who I am and the thing I found in my life is that I I I like people who are in love and I you know what I mean like there's that and then you got that just didn't come across in his character here you know him trying to him moving the invisible furniture and stuff was like it was fine but that note didn't ring as well for me in the movie as it did in the book so I I mean I tend to agree with you he was probably you know I think that he was probably one of my least favorite parts of the movie but he does have the line that I think is really powerful. He has the line where he says, um, you know, I'm my mother's son. I don't know. I found that to be really universal. Again, an older character says that line. It has more weight to me. Because right, there's like the weight of generations. I don't think, but is that even in the book? I think that line was... I think it is. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, mean, book, I might be misremembering. I'm actually not 100% yeah. sure. If it is in the book, then then I understand. But I, th- I thought this was just a movie thing. And I felt like that is so universal though, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you, you want to be the person that your mother raised you to be. And so like he, he's his mother's son, like seemingly, you know, I, and right. I, it does feel weird because it's like, is this a white, uh, savior moment where he's like, you know, he's like, I'm helping you out. And, and like, well, he's Jewish. I, I mean, something about Dave Franco delivering that line just didn't land for me. I don't know what it is. It means preconceived notions about him, um, that I'm carrying into it. I don't know. Right. But I mean, so I want to bring in the context of the, of the interview that I saw that the Toronto international film festival, 2018 Q and a, um, okay. and Barry Jenkins spoke about this line and, you know, like I, I bring it up because I feel like it affected me in the moment and I didn't want to be biased about this, but this is sort of what he says about it. And and like, I feel weird saying this be, just because like I'm a white guy saying like sort of look at what the black director said about the white character and like, mm. it, it, anyway, I'm just going to say it because I think for context sake, like what Barry was trying to get at, I think is, is important to know. So, okay. um, Basically, he was speaking about like, I am my mother, I am my mother's son and how it's, uh, and he goes on to say, it's not about us versus them unless we sort of have it as that in our minds. It's not about white versus black. Um, he says that um, he took that character to the point where he's not a white savior. He's, um, he's just a guy who can connect with another person. And so, like, I understand that I understand what Barry Jenkins was trying to get at with having a character that is good because of 
the way that they had been brought up and the way that they're inclusive and they can connect to another person on an emotional level. But I still feel like it's it, it, it doesn't and I'm a white guy, so it's weird for me to say, but I feel like it doesn't it, it just feels like a weird moment to say, like, there are good white people, too, you know? Well, and I think it's I think it's said better at a different part of the movie, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think the lawyer, when he is sort of welcomed into the family by Tish, and she says, you need to call him Fonny if you're going to do this, if we're going to do this, right. because you need to be part of the family. And he had sort of an understated performance, but you could tell it really affected him. And then, of course, later on, we hear about how he sort of pays some some sort of social um, dues over over the fact that he is as invested in their their case as he is. Dues isn't the right word, but anyway, <laughs> um, it, that that moment I think tells that message, in my opinion, in, in, in a slightly more effective way, which is in his movie too. I definitely agree with that. I think you're right on with that. Um, it just seems like it's a more subtle way than saying like, you know, I'm a good person because my mom raised me to be that way. Um, but I do like the universal idea that like everyone has a mother and everybody wants to be that person. That Yeah. You know. Well, that's why it's a great scene in the book. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not, de- I'm not debating whether or not it's a great scene in the book because it is. I just, yeah. Anyway, I, I want to move on, but yeah, anyway. let's get to plot. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's time we jump into plot. I'm going to, I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. It is, you know, the movie is nonlinear, which we should talk about. Uh, it's it's the the story in in, in general was nonlinear from the start when when mm-hmm. James Baldwin wrote it. Uh, I I think it's done so well in this movie. It's so seamless the way that we go back and forth. Um, it's it, you know how the happiness we feel when Fawny is out and we see him them in love and trying to get their their uh, loft and and just the way that that the love story goes and then the devastation that we feel when he's in jail and finding out that he has a son on the way finding out that, you know, his, um, the woman that's accused him of rape is, is gone, seemingly has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I think the nonlinear structure of this is really powerful. And I think it leads to us, it leads to the mystery and the intrigue of, of the ending being built on sort of the relationships and everything that we're learning, um, the way everything's gone on. And like, we know Fonny's a great person and we know he didn't do it, because of all of the nonlinear storytelling that we get along the way. Well, and that nonlinear storytelling is right out of the book as well. Exactly. All right, so some plot here. Clementine, Tish, Rivers, and Alonzo Fawny Hunt have been friends their whole lives and begin a romantic relationship when they are older. It is the early 1970s, and they struggle to find a place to live as most New York City landlords refuse to rent apartments to black people. They eventually find a place in a warehouse in the process of being converted to loft apartments. Levy, the Jewish landlord, agrees to rent it to them at a reasonable rate because he enjoys seeing couples who are in love, regardless of their race. That night, Tish is harassed by a man while shopping at a mostly white grocery store. When he begins to assault her, Fawny physically throws the man out of the store. A white policeman nearby, Officer Bell, witnesses the incident and attempts to arrest Fawny, but reluctantly lets him go when the white woman who runs the grocery store vouches for them and calls Bell out for his racism. Yeah, uh, which we already talked about that scene, but um, I want to go back to a scene that sort of gets run past in that in that plot summary, and that was the um, the love scene, the first love scene we get mm-hmm. between uh, Fonny and Tish, and that was the scene I referenced earlier in the episode where I wanted to to highlight what I felt like was an effective filmmaking technique that I that I picked up on, and that was they had um, as they're as they're starting to get intimate with each other. Um, the, the, uh, score, which has been there all along, 
falls away. It fades out. And all we can hear is sort of the rain on the on the rooftop or on the window. And it's a very evocative sound, right? Like something we've all heard. And it's silent in this moment. And I think uh, they're getting undressed or, or maybe they've gotten undressed at that point or looking at each other. I can't remember exactly. But the uh, so it, it becomes sort of that diegetic sound, right? Like it's the sound of the scene. Mm-hmm. And then... And then he turns on music, uh, Fonny does. And so now the music, the score of the film has been replaced with the music of the scene specifically. And um, much like all the other things we've discussed, which are all being used in this moment, you know, the, the characters looking directly in the camera, the, the way that the, the scene is being lit, um, all of that combines now with the sound design in a way that I felt like put you in that room and made it present and made it intimate um and just i thought was just incredible filmmaking right to get to get very film studenty about it that you enjoy the mise-en-scene you enjoyed you enjoyed everything in the scene as a culmination (laughs) i i i don't know how to say that (laughs) mise-en-scene and i don't know what it means but sure (laughs) it's like you know it's it's all the aspects of the filmmaking going on it's the cinematography it's the sound design it's the production design it's the actors it's everything the amalgamation of everything would be you would be like oh the mise-en-scene in this in this film was you know very evocative in this moment it felt very genuine well, it was <laughs> yeah so i mean and i agree with you i i i like you said that the you know what's crazy is i sort of i sort of imagined like it's a hot day out it starts to rain and you hear the rain on the on a roof and sort of you feel the heat the residual heat from the day even though it's mm-hmm. cooling off outside and sort of like i felt like the temperature change if that makes yeah. sense like i felt like it's like I, evoking another sense that you're, is not even present yeah right. that's, that's cool stuff yeah yeah so some more summary here fawny is later arrested and accused of raping a woman named victoria rogers although it would have been nearly impossible for him to have traveled from the scene of the crime to the apartment where he was arrested in the amount of time between the rape and the arrest the case against fawny is considered strong due to officer bell's testimony in which he claims to have seen fawny fleeing the scene and victoria having identified and victoria having identified fawny in a lineup as her rapist tish as well as fawny's friend daniel cardi were with him at the time of the rape, but his alibi is not considered reliable due to Tish's romantic relationship with Fawny and Daniel's previous conviction for grand theft auto, the result of a plea bargain after being arrested for marijuana possession. Tish visits Fawny in jail as he awaits trial and reveals to him that she is pregnant with their baby. Fawny is excited to be a father, but is saddened by the fact that his child might be born with him behind bars. Later, Tish tells her parents Sharon and Joseph and sister Ernstine about her pregnancy. Though worried for her, Tish's family is supportive and decide to invite Fawny's family over to share the news. Frank, Fawny's father, is excited about the pregnancy. However, Fawny's highly religious mother declares the child to be a sin due to being conceived out of wedlock and rants about how Tish and her child are damned. As Miss Hunt begins to leave with her daughters in disgust after Frank hits her, Sharon reminds her that she has condemned her own grandchild, leaving her emotionally distraught as she is escorted away. In a bar, Frank and Joseph discuss how the former is worried about paying for a child and Fawny's legal expenses, but Joseph convinces him that they will be able to provide for their grandchild the same way they provided for their children. There's a particular scene here that I want to talk about that um, I'm going to be a little bit critical of, and I, I guess I, I'm being, I'm, I want to be kind of gentle with it because it's, it's, we're talking about a lot of topics that are really sensitive for a lot of people, um, but... I didn't like the slap um, that that Fawny's father delivers. Um, It's in the book. 
and I was mixed on it in the book, but I felt like it, in a way, was setting up what happens later to Fani's father in the book, mm-hmm. which is he commits suicide. Um, I felt like that sort of out-of-control violence was a precursor to the violence he levels at himself later on. And in the movie, that is omitted. So it is sort of a weird outlier. Mm -hmm. And it is also in a time in which, you know, James Baldwin wrote that book in the 70s. This came out in 2018. This is a time in which, like, domestic abuse and... um, those sorts of women's issues are are really in the spotlight in a way that they haven't been in the past. Um, and it just, I don't know, it, it felt like it complicated the scene in a way that it didn't need to. Um, I don't know that it added much. And um, it, it it was a weird note, especially absent what happens at the end of the, of the book that is not in the film. I mean, yeah, I can see that. the it, A couple of things here clearly you know barry jenkins wanted us to feel not great in that moment you know what i mean it's not a good thing that happens he's not in any way sort of advocating any of that sort of violence um right is it accurate for the time i would say probably you know what i mean depending on the family depending on how it went on went on and yeah i i do agree that maybe maybe it seems a little a little awkward with it not you, you know leading ultimately to the violence that he commits on himself on himself but and and there's also the added the added sort of audience participation where we are on the side that is against the woman who is slapped for the most part. Right. So it's almost like you're supposed to cheer for it. But you but it's clear that Barry Jenkins doesn't want you to feel I I would assume doesn't want you to feel that way. Right? Like Yeah, I don't know. And she gets she gets knocked down by it too. Like it's a right. serious slap. There's some com, com, you know, some conflict within me for sure just at seeing that scene yeah. and but that, you know, and and who's to say the intention wasn't there by the filmmaker, you know, like maybe it's like to to raise these ideas and I wonder I, know, I wonder questions. if this is a problem that happened in the editing at editing room, like maybe they changed that character a little bit, but I, to me that feels like a scene that feels like that moment is linked to showing the emotional state of the character is out of control. And I think it leads logically in some ways to like seeing what happens later. And when that doesn't happen later and and or at least we're not privy to it, um it just the scene stands out as, as well, sort of just a weird moment to me. Right. I, I that is a good point though. So coming from our perspective of people who have read the book, what what do you think of the fact that like it is, you know, it could conceivably conceivably still happen within this story, but the fact yeah. that it's omitted, I know you don't like it because of the slap, but like how do you feel about it not being in there in general? Well, I I and one of the and I'll I'll try and find that article so I can link it since I am referencing it. Um that was that was sort of critical. Um, one of the things they pointed out as well was that omission of, of the suicide and they felt like it softened the blow, um, at the end where it, it made things seem a little rosier. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they used the word saccharine. I, I don't know that I would agree with that. Um, but I can see the point and I can see that that particular omission might have an, an effect like that on, on the ending where it's. Mm -hmm. That is definitely a note of tragedy that hangs over the end of the book, right? For Fani, I mean, for it's everybody. A, 
it's a clear decision to not leave it there. Like it's clear that Barry Jenkins wanted the story to end more hopeful. Um, even with all the things going on, it, he wanted a more hopeful ending. Um, so it really comes to, you know, how we think, how we think that worked. And I think it would be, you know, it's devastating to think of, of him killing himself, obviously at the end, at the end there. So we're seeing like new life and the end of, uh, and the end of someone's life. We're seeing the baby, um, soon, you know, around that same time. And so it's like, but I think the idea of the story and, you know, forgive me if I'm, you know, speaking out of turn is, you know, the the sadness with the joy the struggle with the with the success the you know what i mean that's a, a sort of duality that that black people in america have to deal with um and sort of leaving you with the suicide uh, like like is is sort of the punch is the gut punch where you know seemingly hopefully fawny gets out and the baby's born and sort of like the joy has been brought into this world um and and i don't know maybe you know the intention of of like i don't know both things being so present within the story especially in the in the book and definitely in the film as well yeah i want to talk about the final scene of the film a little bit when we get there to to sort of wrap up where i think barry jenkins leaves it because i think he does an interesting job there um but let's let's get there through the summary i think if you're ready okay yeah sure after tracking victoria to her native puerto rico sharon travels there to plead with her to change her testimony Sharon attempts to convince Victoria that she made a mistake when she identified Fawny as her rapist, but Victoria refuses. When Sharon questions whether Victoria could have seen her rapist's face in the dark, Victoria says the police told her to identify Fawny in a lineup, and she did so. When Sharon gently touches her, Victoria begins to scream, attracting the attention of her neighbors, forcing Sharon to leave. Discouraged by the seeming hopelessness of of his case and the constant trial delays, Fawny eventually accepts a plea deal. In the last scene of the film, Tish and the child named Alonzo Jr. after his father are visiting Fawny in prison. They all share a dinner together from the vending machine while looking forward to Fawny's eventual release. Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit before we get to some of those final scenes. Uh, There was a really interesting sequence where we see Fawny carving. Uh, He's doing his woodworking. Oh, and he's smoking. The camera is like spinning around him. And he's, he's smoking and there's sawdust. And the way it's lit um, is dramatic. And he's working, I think, on the same piece that earlier on we see um, Daniel say, like, oh, I get it, man. It's, it's you know, the black man struggles heavy or something. And I thought it was a hilarious scene because it reminds me of, like, well-meaning friends who clearly don't get art <laughs> that right. you've created, but, like, trying to. Or maybe they get it a little bit. Um, but I think he actually is sort of he sort of gets it in a way and, and he's sort of leading the audience to understand that that is sort of what this is about. And um, so because of that, I was able to interpret the scene of him looking at it and working on it as him sort of considering his role in American society and the weight he bears um, as a black man in it. And um, it was beautifully shot and it was just a really fascinating sequence. Like what were your thoughts on that? Well, and I think it gives a great moment to show the passionate person that Fawny is, right? Like he's so passionate for Tish. He's, you know, he says it himself. He's passionate for two things. He's passionate for Tish and he's passionate for his sculpting, his wood and stone. And I I think showing a character who's incarcerated, who can't do the thing that he loves, which is seeing Tish, you know, on a regular basis, being with her and also his, his woodworking and stoneworking, 
I like to, to just see him in his element and then to know that he's locked away from it for such a long time. Um, and like his passion and the thing that he like drives him, um, it's the tragedy of it all, you know? And, and like not as it's, it's the tragedy of everything that goes on in prison is horrific to him and, and, you know, Daniel as well. And I'm sure everyone, but then it's the, the added fact that he can't, move on with his life pursue his dreams do the things that he that he wants to do the life that they're stealing from him it's not just it's not just about being locked up and like the active day-to-day but it's the years that they're taking away that where you know who knows what kind of successful sculptor he could have become in those two years who knows like what connections he could have made what what art he could have created and, and then released into the world what joy he could have brought yeah you know and and i was also thinking about how with james baldwin i said i felt like he in the last episode that he identified with fawny and um the sculpture and the woodworking was sort of a stand-in for writing um to me and here it's fascinating because i can see barry jenkins kind of speaking to us through this scene too mm-hmm. um in the visual art that is being made and um I think it's fascinating to notice how Fawny looks and how he the emotion he seems to have in the scene. He's very intense, and I wouldn't say he seems joyful. Like he's he's almost chain smoking, mm-hmm. um, and he seems very serious. Um, and he's not making something whimsical, right? Like he's making this sort of rough hewn, misshapen sculpture that I think is sort of representative of of a lot of the things he's feeling. So I think it shows just what kind of artist he is. And um, maybe Barry Jenkins feels that his art is similar to that in some way. Yeah. Like it's not, I mean, it's, like, it's like he it's, loves it, but he's also like deadly serious about it. And it's not, right. it's not light. It's a purpose, right? It's like he feels right. it's, it's more than just like for, for the love of it, for the joy of it. Like it's driven. It's, it's like important, um, which, you know, I understand. I do want to talk about one more scene before we wrap up here. And that is, you know, leading up to the final scene, um, the decision to have Fawny still in prison with his son older than an infant, you know what I mean? Seeing his son is clearly what, four or five, something, you know, something like that. The idea of, you know, oh, that your trial is coming up soon. You're going to get out soon. And the way that the system just keeps like beating him down and the idea that he's still in there when his son is five. I I mean, that scene is powerful in and of itself just the the interaction that's shared and like the love that the child has for him, even though he's not around all the time and clearly like the admiration and the artist in the, in the sun that broke my heart too. Like the idea that he's like working on his art um, and like, he's not there to, to see it, him like develop and create like that. Um, But like I said, the, just the idea that he's still there, it's been forever. Well, in the implied, and that's what I wanted to get to with that final scene is that in the book we have the baby crying the last lines crying and crying and crying and crying and uh i don't think i hit on it enough in the last episode but although i felt like the baby sort of represented joy and represented hope for the characters um it is also notable that we have a baby crying and crying and crying and crying and i think it's showing that reaction to the world like the harshness of the world that has been you know that the child has been born into and here I think Barry Jenkins rightfully recognizes that that if you have a baby crying and crying and crying at the end, it might not have the same effect in a film. Mm-hmm. So he cre- he creates this scene, which is new. And 
the effect of the crying is implied, I think, by the fact that this meeting between them, like you said, you know, so much time has passed and he's missed so much. But also the surroundings, because we, we, we go back and we see the room they're in and we see the police, uh, the guards standing around. And we see that this this family that loves each other um, so much and that we have connected with so much is still imprisoned, all of them in a way, in this system. And even his son, at an early age, is already deeply aware of this system and, and the fact that his father is, is a victim of it. And it's sort of like making another victim and, and showing that like, this is a cycle that is going to continue, which is, you know, heartbreaking too. So it, it felt like he, he translated that. I thought it was an interesting adaptation moment because it felt like he translated that scene in a way to something that might be more effective. In a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I think for, for all the stuff that we've talked about, um, I don't think I mentioned enough how everyone involved uh, based on the interview that I saw, the, the Q&A that I saw from the Toronto Inter- International Film Festival, um, every single actor, everyone on stage was affected by James Baldwin in some way. And the love that they had for the source material and, and what he meant. Um, one of the actors, um, Fawny's father in the movie, he says that James Baldwin is the modern Shakespeare and like how important it is to to these people and and just this idea that barry jenkins like the weight that he must have felt adapting a story like this that um Mm -hmm. you know has so much more it's so much more than just adapting a story yeah important civil rights figure we talked about last week so if you haven't heard our last episode and you want and you're curious about james baldwin you might check it out yeah just the weight uh the pressure i would i would feel i think trying to trying to you know stand on the shoulders of someone like that and try to create something based on his work um, and he succeeded, in my opinion. I, yeah, I, I think this is a great adaptation. Absolutely, I think you know I, I've been I've had some some small criticisms here, or there small gripes, but I, overall, I think this is a stunning, stunning adaptation. Right. I mean, he really he really was able to key in on what the specific intention of James Baldwin was. I, I would say for sure, he mm-hmm. he understands it um, extremely well, and I think this is what adaptation is all about. Like if. If it's a story this important to adapt it in this way and make it, he was, you know, he's just telling the, telling James Baldwin's for, for one, to speak about the fact that like there's narration in order to give us the inner monologue that in some, in some cases is actual James Baldwin dialogue from if Beale Street could talk the the book. Um, I mean, I think that's genius. I think it's so smart to be, to lean in. I th- we had something else recently that we covered that was similar um, where, where, you know, you use the, you use the, the, prose or you use the dialogue that someone has written because it's so inherent to the story oh i think you're referencing get shorty with elmore leonard who's who's known for his his particular brand of dialogue right and, very and different how, uh, story very very different yeah, very story, different <laughs> absolutely the idea of of like you know using using the text because it's so it's so drill it's so clearly drills down to what is trying to be said in the story mm-hmm so usually at the end of our projects, um, this year, really, for every project, we've taken a moment to decide which we felt was better, the book or the movie. Um, but here, it didn't really feel appropriate for us to say that. Um, it, as much as like we talk about adaptations, there's so much in this film that is not really our place to speak on, that to try and judge which was better, it just felt weird 
to us, so we're not going to do it this time. <laughs> yeah, it just felt weird for two white guys to kind of come down on one way or the other. Like, I, I don't really feel like it's our mm-hmm. place. Like, I, I think both are amazing. If you know, if that, if that is sort of yeah. my rec- my my recommendation on it, is both is are great. Consume both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we are going to leave it here. Um, this has been a really you know, uh, emotional and um, thought-provoking, eye-opening uh, project that that I've really enjoyed personally. Um, hopefully, our listeners got something out of it, you know, um, whether they came along on the journey with us and actually watched the film, read the book, or even if they just kind of dipped in because they were curious, um, you know, I do recommend it. And, um, you know, thank you for, for sticking with us for the, with this. And it's something that's a little out of the, out of the, outside the norm. for us Um, but we want to make it less outside the norm by doing more representation and and covering more uh projects like this yeah i mean it it, it's great to put a spotlight on a project like this um you know it puts us out of our comfort zone a little bit it's not sort of our our typical genre type type project but i think you know if nothing else i i'm happy for sort of the the perspective and the and the you know, the experience of, of going through this project. Um, and hopefully, you know, some people, some people feel the same way. And hopefully maybe if people didn't know about this story they they've now been exposed to it in some way. So you also notice we didn't have a guest on for this, for these, for this project. Um, we felt like for us, we, the book and the film themselves can sort of give us the perspectives we need. And we didn't want to exp- we didn't want to have someone come on and feel like it was their role to explain to us something about like the black experience. Um, however, we are open to that. If someone wanted to come on to talk about a project like this with us, we would be open to it. Um, we just didn't want to like pursue that. We felt like it would be a little weird. And I think there's enough there in the art itself um, to give us plenty to interact with. It is self-explanatory in a way. Um, so yeah, that's why we just decided to stick with uh, just us two, you know, which people, maybe people are surprised to see that, but, um, we felt like that was the, the right choice. Right. It, it just didn't feel like our place to sort of ask, ask someone of color to, to come on a podcast and tell us why, you know, yeah. that we should feel certain ways. And like, clearly it would have been better perspective and it would have been a voice that, that you should listen to more than ours. Um, but right. in this situation, it just, for, for now, I think it's, um, you know, a learning experience for us, hopefully a learning experience for a lot of our listeners. Hopefully yeah. we can continue to, yeah. to, to, to th- that's the main thing is like, I think with all this going on, I want to continue to, to try to cover this sort of stuff. I want to continue to try to, to change hearts and minds and, and like hopefully get lasting change from, you know, the police force from, uh, discrimination in America. Yeah. And like, which you know, we I, will I, solve I, these are all of those problems with our podcast. <laughs> lofty goals, obviously, but it's just, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm, at this yeah. point, I'm engaged in it. You know, if, if even that, if it's a drop in the water, you know, right. we want to make sure it's the right it's the right bucket. I don't know. <laughs> I've I like lost it. The metaphor. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go with that. I like the metaphor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so we will be getting to something that's maybe a little more typical fare for us. Um, however, something I'm excited about because I know that it's very um, there's like a lot of social commentary being made, um, and that is that is next week we are going to be engaging with a and we're going to be covering a uh, commissioned project by one of our patrons and that is going to be snowpiercer uh both the graphic novel and the film the 2013 film i think i think 2013 sounds about right um you know i'm excited i 
I, I think this this project has been brought up a lot on the pad- podcast. Um, you one time said that it was like uh, one of the greatest sci-fi movies. Like, like not that you'd seen it, but you'd heard that people I haven't were seen saying it, but it's I've one heard of the, people one of the greatest it, yeah. sci-fi movies of the past like five or ten years or something like that. I think it's a good movie. I don't know if I put it in that category personally, but you know, maybe maybe my taste will change on it this time. Uh, I would definitely well, enjoy maybe it it maybe out. reading the source material will affect the way you affect the way you view it because that's ha- definitely happened for both of us. I think on the very podcast. true, and like that's not to take anything away from Bong Joon Ho, who I absolutely love. I don't think that I, I think that this movie got a certain amount of popularity with Chris Evans at the lead, and it's sort of like it's a Korean directed film, but it's not it's not like Parasite where it's a Korean film. Um, sure. very much like uh, i think that it got popular for a reason is what i'm trying to say and i think it's great i think we're gonna de- definitely gonna enjoy it um but i recommend going and checking out a ton of bong well Jun-ho. i'm excited because i haven't seen it so because <laughs> that, that bong joon ho is like a a true international treasure and uh the the art that he puts out is is so unique and i think that he is easily one of my favorite filmmakers okay well you gotta save something for next week man <laughs> yeah. well let me tell you about um, i'm just kidding <laughs> Uh, so if you enjoyed this episode, I'm going to ask you to do something different. I normally ask you to leave a rating review, um, on whatever podcast app you use, which I would still love it if you did. Um, but also you can also just let us know online, tweet at us, you know, we're adding to film on Twitter. We're, we're on Facebook. You can like our Facebook page, you know, it's at adding to film on there as well. Um, join the council of inklings, our Facebook group on there. But let us know online. Um, that is, it's a cool to see sort of um, people engaging with this with this episode in particular. You know, I'd really be interested to see what people think of it. And um, you know, we like we like hearing that, and I think it's uh, it helps get the word out in a different way because you know everybody's living online these days anyway. Everybody's on Twitter, so for the most part. Um, and you know, it's always cool to get love on Twitter. And if you wanted to support this podcast in another way, uh, check out our Patreon. Like we said, we're doing a commission project. It's one of our higher tiers in order to, you know, get us to commission to, in order to commission something for us to cover. But we have lower tiers. We have we have our bonus episode, which we which we put out monthly. We're up to like twenty six mm-hmm. or something like that now, twenty seven yeah. maybe even. Um, so well, we have plenty. Uh, of con- I think that we'll be putting out our twenty seventh in July. So we have a ton of content over there. Speaking about adaptation adjacent things, all kinds of fun stuff. Definitely check that out. Um, and, you know, we super appreciate financial support because it helps this podcast continue. Absolutely. And we want to thank uh, old Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music, delivering the goods as always. Yeah, we're going to have to meet that guy someday. <laughs> I hope so. That'd be cool. All right. So I think that's going to be it for this week. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. Yeah. Hopefully you join us. But until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>